Hello SFIA audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code, IsaacArthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to your SFAA livestream Q&A monthly event. We'll just go ahead and get right into questions in a second. For upcoming events, uh, we'll discuss them more on the break uh, at the half hour mark, but uh, we will be having a Discord session right after this for live chat for any questions you miss, and go ahead and start getting those questions in now, try to keep them as neat as possible and we'll start getting to them. We do have a couple of them um, to begin with right from the get-go, and uh, we'll go ahead and get started. Albert Jackson asks, space fighters are assumed to be useless, as to my understanding they are not. Uh, would there be any situations in a space war where an engagement between two factions fighters would occur? It's not the idea that a space fighter is necessarily a useless object. It's more the idea that a human piloting one is not going to be of a lot of good. Everything you're doing in space, there's no air, there's no hills, there's no mountains. So even those weapons that aren't light speed, like a laser or a directed energy weapon, are not going to have an easy time missing. There's really no way to, to spook them too well. And most of the ways you'd avoid that are by doing very high acceleration maneuvers. And realistically, to dodge a laser beam, you're talking about trying to engage someone a couple hundred kilometers, kilometers at most. And uh, that from... Even then you need to do like 100G bones. You're just not going to do that with a human. Now, a cyborg or an artificial intelligence probably could. And the only reason you're using something like that is to get in really close. So you have to be using something that's lightly onboard fast and doesn't run out of fuel. It doesn't matter if your spaceship can do a 100G burn for one second because it's done that burn and it's done. You're not reacting to things that you have already gotten shot at. You're reacting to the possibility somebody might shoot you. So for instance, um, if I see somebody point a gun at me in space, it's too late to do anything especially if it's a laser beam, it's going to already have hit me by the time I'm seeing it. Um, what you're trying to do is, is create a, a zone of uncertainty around yourself that you cannot, uh, that they cannot guess. So you do something we call a random walk, basically flipping a coin so you're going to move up or down or left or right just a little bit. And that unpredictability has to be going on constantly. If they don't know where you are or where you're going to be when their light gets to you, when they see you, then you have a certain little window you can dodge around in but you have to be generating that constantly, or else you're not going to be uh, able to do uh, anything in terms of dodging. Our next question, uh, Russ PJ, falling into a black hole, ignoring damage, would you evaporate from Hawking radiation before you pass the event horizon? No. Um, Hawking radiation is very, very minor on something like a normal black hole, and it's, it's being created by the black hole's event horizon, not by you falling into it. When you fall into a black hole, you'd be ripped apart and torn into part of its accretion disk. Um, but the hockey radiation itself from a normal solar mass black hole is so small that even though it's like gamma radiation, you'd have problems picking up with a Geiger counter. It's only the much smaller ones that produce an awful lot of it. A hockey radiation goes up you know, exponentially as you lower the mass of the black hole, or so we believe. It's actually kind of an interesting thing as theory predicts it, but we'll probably find Hawking radiation on a micro black hole we've made before we actually get a chance to measure one. Because with any that we find, and the nearest one we know of is 3,000 light years away, though there are probably closer ones, 
um, you'd have to have one that was completely sealed off from the outside universe so nothing was falling in to interrupt your uh, checks. And then you need a really sensitive machine, I mean really sensitive Geiger counter to actually detect any hockey radiation on something that big. Uh, just because it's so small, that's why they live so long. Valencia Bell asks, if humans ever travel the universe in order to colonize varying planets with living species, wouldn't, would it not be a good idea for us to inject ourselves with alien DNA in order to live alongside them? Um, you know, I've never injected myself with cat DNA before in order to, uh, in order to get along better with my cats, but, um, I mean, it's an option, certainly, uh, that you, we're talking about hybriding somebody to be more like an alien. I think if you were the ambassador to an alien planet, you might go for an android that looked very much like them that you were uploading your mind into, or that, uh, maybe have a cloned body, kind of gets to be the same thing at that point. And uh, that might be about you go, or more likely you might just live in a dome or a space station and just talk to them by, you know, audio or some faked up screen that mimics your behavior and translate it into what the human responses would be. You're talking to an alien and it looks surprised and normally we go, but for an alien they might be like, and you don't know what that expression is going to be like. So you probably have some kind of translation program that was not just translating your words literally, but all your euphemisms, facial expressions, appropriate pauses, and so on. Whatever they use for language might not be vocal. They might blink their eyes and have conversations that take place over milliseconds or months. You don't really know what it's like. Um, But I mean, I guess with aliens in general, the idea that you could just live and walk among them. And I was watching old episodes of Babylon 5 recently. Uh, for anyone who's played Mass Effect, Babylon 5 is is uh, kind of the source material for a lot of that. There you've got the, the ambassador oil station where all the aliens walk around. And that's such a neat idea. We all kind of love that in science fiction. But from a realistic perspective, that's probably never going to happen. You'll probably only talk in very artificial correspondence ways, more like email or Facebook than you would... Um, live hand-to-hand, you know, shaking things. Um, how are you doing today is just not going to be the way that happens in all probability. This, of course, assuming that we have actually get to meet any. But if you really wanted to live in an alien civilization, I think you probably would have to do a lot more and just have a, you know, an android or a DNA that, that match theirs, you know, a body that match theirs. I think you'd have to have a lot of brain restructuring, arguably to the point that you're not really human anymore. You know, when you go visit another country, you need to assimilate to that culture but you're still human and so are they. Uh, even when I'm talking to my cat, for instance, we're still from the same, you know, we were cousins 60 times, 60 million times removed. Um, we could get along, you know, uh, we have similar interests, backgrounds, uh, evolution, but you're not going to have as much of that with aliens, even though you'd share a lot of similar things like an interest in math. Uh, Subbot asks, can we get some new SFIA merchandise? Probably in the near future. I think we are going to do some tote bags or some other things. Um, we'll definitely have to expand that. I have to admit, I, I tend to get distracted. Well, I shouldn't say distracted. I tend to focus on getting the episodes done than all the other things we're doing. Uh, like Nebula, for instance, the new streaming service. That's been in the work for months. And uh, the prep work for that, um, to even to get an episode that was original for that, that was originally going to run on the channel, but there wasn't a good place to put it this weekend. So I thought, well, why don't we use it for the uh, live streaming service instead? You know, it's a bit of a kick free, but the weekly episodes are the focus and a lot of the other channel stuff kind of follows the side. Uh, but we will get to around to uh, doing something to uh, expand that at some point in the future, although with me that could be months. Uh, the anime asks, 
How do you think we will be able to prevent global warming or avoid it to prevent major damage to ecosystems, etc.? Or will we learn that the hard way? Where humanity is concerned, we learn everything the hard way. Um, you know, I, I don't want to sound pessimistic about that topic or sound too lighthearted, like it's not really a big problem. But I do tend to think climatological damage, uh, ecosystem damage, these kind of things are, are things that we do often have to learn. Um, you know, we have to learn to appreciate these things kind of the hard way by losing some of them occasionally. Uh, we are getting better at that. You know, if you look at, uh, I hate to pick on London, but uh, the joke about London being covered in smog for pretty much the entire 19th century, um, soot and ash everywhere. That's a, you know, that's the place we started. That's, you know, kind of your center point for the Industrial Revolution. And, um, you know, we've gotten a lot cleaner and a lot better since then. We've also gotten a lot more numerous, a lot more industrialized though. So there is, um, there's a lot of things we could do to potentially reverse or mitigate things like this though. Like with, um, with extinct species, you can take samples for DNA, frozen or digital or whatever, and then bring them back later on in some creature that was very similar to them or keep a very small number of them alive to provide a social continuity while you've got all the genetic diversity frozen and you can just kind of bring them back. Not an ideal solution, but it is a solution that would work. Same, you know, if you got the planet warming up for some reason or cooling down, you can potentially, you know, feel with that with um, orbital meals or shades. And those aren't really all that expensive once you've got an industrialized uh, presence in space. You do have to have that infrastructure. You know, you're talking about making, you know, millions of square miles or square kilometers of uh, sail or meal. And those only had to be as thick as tinfoil. Uh, on Earth, we could easily do that. That, you know, is not that cheap. We're still be talking about billions of dollars. But up in space right now, even though that's not that heavy, that would still be a little bit price prohibitive. We could do it. Um, but you'd be looking at potentially spending hundreds of billions, if not low trillions on something like that. And more importantly, having to re regenerate that every few years uh, or every decade or so, depending on how stable the stuff was. So that's not really an ideal solution just at this moment. There are a lot of other ones that could be employed. We did talk about some of them in Earth, Earth 2.0 and then way back in the weather control and geoengineering episodes. Um, <clears throat> Kendrick Amphlet asks, what is your opinion on future post-scarcity economies and their effect on the impetus to wage war? Um, hmm, I was thinking about Augustine's comments on uh, what's, a, uh, what's a legitimate reason to go to war, what's a just reason for it. And it's, it's worth remembering that prior to that, while many people did kind of hold that opinion, it was often considered perfectly okay and legitimate to just go and attack your neighbor because you wanted their stuff. And you could tell anyone that's what you were doing. Uh, you know, why are we attacking them? We want their stuff. And, um, you know, technology is not the thing that stops wars from happening. What stops wars from happening is uh, removing the reasons why people want to attack them. Yes, that helps. You know, a post-scarcity economy removes a lot of those reasons. But at the same time, it's about being a thoughtful and sober society that, that kind of thinks these things through. And I do think with a post-scarcity economy, you'd be more likely to have um, a more thoughtful society ideally. Though, of course, in some, you might actually have the exact reverse. People are very short-tempered and, and prone to going to war because they're spoiled brats. The, the answer to all those things, of course, is that you're not aiming for a post-scarcity economy. You're aiming for a civilization where they can be post-scarcity because everybody's very educated, trained, long-lived. Um, you know, they are very reasonable and ideal. I hate to say the word enlightened because that often carries uh, kind of an impression of everybody sitting around in a meditation circle together. But uh, people who are thinking things through, critically thinking things through with a, you know, reason mixed with compassion. 
And uh, I like to think that that would result from a post-scarcity society, that there's kind of a mutual feedback, but it's really hard to say. You don't really know what kind of economy a post-scarcity civilization is going to have, too. Um, often people say it would be one with no money in it. Others would say it might be an anarcho-capitalist one because you don't need much regulation in a case like that. But critically with a lot of things like that, if you have that much technology and resources, you can probably make almost any system you want work. So I don't think you can really predict which uh, systems or, you know, and again, not single, uh, which plural systems might be in place in, in a civilization like that. Jeremy Pace asks, will you ever do scientific theories such as Einstein, scribble Carter theory and the possible ramifications from that theory? I don't know Einstein, scribble Carter theory. <laughs> Um, you have to excuse me by the way today it's allergy season so I'm a little scratchy voiced um, we don't really tend to do too much of the theories in deep detail uh, like an Einstein Rosen Bridge a wormhole we might talk about the impact of those but one thing we're never going to do on the channel is dig into um, into general relativity it's not something I really want to us to uh, spend time on going through all that math we'll get to the basics but I like to keep everything on the show reasonably close to uh, to algebra, you know, levels, so you don't have to know those things in order to appreciate to to understand and talk about the topic. Um, you know, we don't try to dumb things down on the channel either, but at the same time, I don't want people to feel like they can't talk about physics without having to go take calculus and differential equations and all those other fun things. Although they're actually all fun once you learn them, and, and I know a lot of people have a little bit of a fear of math, but uh, it is worth learning. Um, Dwayne Peters asks, how far away do you think the nearest space failing aliens are? Are they within 10 light years, 1,000, a million, a billion? Um, where are the nearest alien civilizations? At this point in time, I tend to feel that there are none within not only this galaxy, but probably the supercluster. Um, and it could be way farther than that too. It's, uh, I don't know, we haven't really talked about the Dyson dilemma in a long time. It's kind of the, one of the, uh, basic concepts of the show, but it's you know an auto episode, and I already redid it once, so I don't really like to redo it again. We're coming up on 200 episodes now, and um, I actually think we've actually gone over 200 if you include all the bonus, bonus episodes and things. But uh, on the official chronology, we're still short of that. We're about one, what do we write, 198 the other day. So we've got a ways to go on um, on hitting 200, but that's 200 episodes, each of which tends to be about half an hour long. And most people really can't keep track of all the material there. So uh, we'll probably be doing um, redos of some of the concepts, but I usually like to expand on them. Anyway, the Dyson Dilemma or the Dyson Dilemma 2.0, which I'd suggest watching since the Dyson Dilemma is episode one on the channel. It's got very bad sound and audio. Um, kind of goes through why we would think there would be no intelligent civilizations, not only in our galaxy, but inside our supercluster. And... Um, the basic reasoning being that if they all at all like us, and it doesn't have to be every one, let's say one out of ten civilizations pursues the path we think that we would do, which is to kind of dice up and expand everywhere and just kind of encircle all the stars and use them for things. Not necessarily as power source either, you might take them apart uh, to use for raw matter. If you're doing this approach where you're basically expanding and keeping control of the resource in your galaxy, uh, no matter how you do that, that's very visible from galaxies and galaxies away. And we're looking around and we're not seeing that. We've scanned, what was it, 100,000 galaxies nearest us and can't with nothing. Um, and if even one in 10 of those is doing that, that approach, then we should have seen something that was seen within hundreds of millions of light years of here. So I think at this point in time, we can rule out any civilizations within that, within that kind of window because 
you think some of them would follow that path, unless someone can give me a reason why they can't, which four years and change later, nobody has actually done. So I feel like that one's kind of stuck in place. Uh, Numblejack asks, what will happen to historical buildings in the future? What will be the dominant architectural style? <laughs> um, you know, you will have a tendency, I think, in any given area to try to, uh, to keep a single architectural style for like that block, for instance. We do that a lot where we can. And over time, it gets to be a bit mismatching too. But I can't imagine us ever settling on a single architectural style. Um, you know, there, there was, uh, was it Vitruvian approach where you just kind of form and function. You know, the, the beauty of it comes from it being very functional. But even inside limitations of that, which kind of go away when you have a lot of resource and get away with doing things that don't really all that functional appearance. Um, there's so many different ways you could do that. Um, you know, I don't, I don't like portrayals of the future. I always show anything be, um, basically tinfoil, bright, glassy, glossy things. Um, I always joke about the new Star Trek reboot films that J.J. Abrams made it look like the inside of an Apple store. There was uh, it's that and lens flares all over the place. Uh, I think you would still see a lot of old wood and old, uh, you know, classic designs right in the middle of, you know, space stations even. So you're landing your spaceship outside of what looks like a, a an old farm or barn just because, you know, you're going to have a mix of these styles. Um... James McAllister asks, uh, have you read the paper that claims the scarcity of phosphorus in some parts of the universe could be a contributor to the Fermi paradox? Uh, yes, I have. I can't remember its name right now. Um, somebody wants to dig that up and post the comments. That'd be appreciated in the chat. Um, the reasoning's not bad. Phosphorus is going to be important for life as we know it. And uh, that doesn't necessarily mean all life would depend on it, but it's be, seems fairly logical to expect there to be a phosphorus dependence. I haven't seen anything that would indicate that phosphorus was so rare that Earth would be the anomaly. Um, if anything, we're kind of getting to see a more of a look back with a young oceans moon concept that we might not have these oceans we've got if it weren't for the moon being made by that crash when Theia hit all the Earth. But I mean, it certainly it's a filter, no doubt. Uh, and it could be that you just aren't going to get species popping up till then. But, you know, there will be plants that are a billion years older than ours that would have the same phosphorus content as us, or two billion even. You know, you've got plenty of stars that, and systems that have the right metallicity for that. And so where are the civilizations that have a two billion year head start on us? Where are the ones with a hundred billion year head start on us? Where are the ones with a million uh, year head start on us? Even plants that are younger than us could easily have civilizations that, that arose to, to where we are faster. You know, we just talk about what if Rome hadn't fallen or what if Greece had determined stuff earlier on or what if China had, you know, any number of these civilizations that were around, had they got a slight different tack, might have been on the moon centuries ago. And that's assuming, what if we discovered ceramics 30,000 years ago? You know, we discovered fire a million years ago. We didn't really do ceramics or metal until the last few thousand years, well, 10,000 years. That's a long gap of time. And so when you start expanding it out to gaps of a billion years, it gets kind of ridiculous to place anything as, an, as a filter, as a strong filter on uh, alien civilizations that you can't show, you know, only popped up recently as a war. Because it was something like a billion years of us, what difference does it make if it was something that only happened a billion years ago anyway? You got tons of plants that would qualify. Uh, thank you, Dan Rob. You have said that FTL would enable time travel. Could you explain how? Oh, I was just talking about not wanting to explain general relativity. Uh, we'll do the special relativity answer real quick. 
As you speed up and approach the speed of light, time for you begins to slow down. If you could actually get to the speed of light, you would experience no time passage. Photons don't experience time. Neutrinos would experience virtually none, assuming they do actually have proper mass. Um, anything, you know, if you're going, this is normal time, and as we approach the speed of light, time slows, slows, slows. And then if you're going faster than the speed of light and you plunge those same numbers in, and you can do this, you get an imaginary time that we usually call that reverse time in this case. Because um, the square root of negative one is an imaginary number, but you're basically getting a negative number out of the passage for time. And that's the special relativity answer on that. That continues to be the case with general relativity and things like that though too. Anything we can find that would ever actually let you go faster than light um, through space would produce that effect. And you can mimic that effect with things like warm horse, for instance, even though you're not going through space there. Um, it doesn't have one like the Alcubio drive because that's not a classic uh, FTL system. That is distorting the space right in front of you. That's why that is allowed uh, under known physics if you've access to negative matter. Of course, the problem with <coughs> negative matter or negative energy outside of a very quantum level, like at the basic foam um, is that those also rely on negative or imaginary uh, numbers to be true. So um, kind of the same thing there, you're trying to get around an equation that doesn't let you have negative values in it, because there are no negative values in, in, in real world stuff. You don't have a negative gallon of water anywhere, and they work fine on paper. You can have a negative gallon of water on paper. If you can find a negative quantity in space, uh, that's great. And even we say, well, you got negative charge, you got a positive charge. So, no, this is what you called them. Uh, it's you've got charge type A in the reverse. You know, you've got an up and a down. That's different. Mm. It's not a measurement of quantity. Mr. E from Tau City asks Artificial gravity in starships, could you build your ship around a neutron star remnant to generate a gravitational field? Yes. Yes, you absolutely could. Um, and in theory, you could have like a thin layer of neutronium um, in your floor contained somehow, just a thin layer. It's dense enough that it would actually cause a gravitational field. The problem is that there's a lot of mass that you have to start pushing around. So even ignoring the problems containing that kind of matter and keeping the field from it kind of even, um, you still have to use the same amount of mass to generate the gravity that you would for a planet. It'd be a smaller one, like we were talking about in colonizing black holes. Uh, you can do those microplanets, uh, but that is a lot of mass. You don't make a spaceship out of a black hole that way. Uh, except when you're just trying to move tons of matter that way, like we discussed with uh, Fleet of Star Wars, where you're using one as, as a gigantic matter-energy converter. Very heavy ship, but it is possible. It's just I would not tend to think you'd want to use neutron stars if you, if you can do micro-black holes. Um, if, on the other hand, you can't do micro-black holes, or you can't find somebody to make stable neutron or degenerate matter, or even white dwarf matter, it's a different type of degenerate matter, um, then, yeah, those might be past artificial um, gravity, but I'm not seeing the reason to do that. We use the black hole that way because you can use it to convert matter to energy. Um, you can't really do that with a neutron star unless you want to push it over the edge into being a black hole. Uh, Colors999 asks, what, ch what are the chances of humans losing their humanness if they interbred with aliens, and would that possibly lead to historical race relations? You don't interbreed with aliens. Um, you could mix with them in various fashions. You could probably scientifically weasel something together that allowed you to create a hybrid. But, you know, the implication from breeding is that that's a reasonably natural process and that's not going to be permitted. You're not going to be able to, to uh, crossbreed with Vulcans uh, because it's a far, far different, you know, biology than even trying to crossbreed with, uh, with an elephant. It's not going to happen. 
Uh, and if you're talking about mixing something together, then that's just something new that was inspired by both. It's it's the same as saying, well, me and this alien got together to paint up, you know, a, a painting. Or, well, we can do that together. That's something we've made together. I guess that's a hybrid. Any intelligence that you made that way, a person would be the same way. Not to imply they wouldn't be a person, but you know, that's that's the interbreeding allowed there. Nikos Greek asks, there is a theory that after falling in a supermassive black hole, you effectively fall into the same singularity. The one of the final, oh you mean, okay, the one of the final black hole. It often goes around the idea that uh, the singularity at the bottom of a black hole is shared by all the other black holes. Um, now some reasons why this could be permitted, um, often having to do with why gravity is the weaker force, but thinking about it at a very basic level, if all those black holes were sharing the same point, uh, why isn't the gravity outside of any individual black hole way, way stronger with the combined mass of all those black holes? If that's what you're asking. Um, Mr. Nish, everybody has such interesting names here. How about an episode on making Earth an environmentalist dream? What tech and social solutions would be required? Does it mean most humans leaving Earth? Um, you know, I'm not sure what qualifies as an environmentalist dream. Um, I tend to assume most people are environmentalists. Um, if I have to leave this planet, it's not a dream for me, and I wouldn't expect anybody else to do that, nor do I think it's required. We talked about that in the Alcologies episode, I think, how in, in Ecumenopolises uh, as well, um, you don't have to decrease the number of people on this planet to help your ecology. You just have to be very careful about how you grow in ways that uh, that aren't going to be rampantly damaging areas, but you should be able to grow a much larger population on Earth and, and leave the current ecology in place quite safely. You just have to exercise a little bit of control, restraint, and and um, and do a lot of research, you know, get better at this stuff. Um, Stephen Rice asks, what is your view on the possibility of trans-dimensional travel? As soon as somebody tells me what trans-dimensional travel means, I will give you a viewpoint. Sorry, Stephen. That that term has uh, gotten used so much in science fiction that it's kind of like hyperspace. I can't talk about something who has undefined properties. Um, you know, we say dimensions a lot. Uh, to give you an idea, mass is a dimension. Length is a dimension. Time is a dimension. Um, let's see what other dimensions we have. You can make a dimension out of almost anything. You could do elephants versus apples to plot out the dimensionality of how many apples a elephant eats in a year. And um, when we talk about these other dimensions, what people usually of course mean is a, a another dimension very much like what we call a, a uh, parallel reality or one that had an extra dimension on it like um, you know a fourth physical dimension or the right angle to reality or ones where the things were laid out differently like um, you know, a two-dimensional board, but it's got a third dimension, kind of like the old, uh, you know, you can have mini layers of paper type of thing, or ones where you could wrap yourself around to go to another place. These kind of things would all have very different properties, and trying to talk about how we would travel to them would first mean how, knowing how do we actually relate to them. You know, can these places ever be more real to us than ones we just make up in our head? Because we can't communicate or travel between them, they might as well not exist, even if they do exist. And um, we have no no concept whatsoever for how we would actually travel between these. I guess maybe under M theory, brain, brain, uh, cosmic brains, brain theory, you could come up with some arguable ways you could do that, but we haven't even found a way to test uh, string theory yet, so it's kind of iffy. Um, we'll go to break and a couple more questions. Football on the only cylinder. Does team plane and counter rotation direction have an advantage of lower gravity? Hmm. 
I guess it would depend on how big the field is, how much that would make a bit of a difference on. We will do an episode on space sports, but uh, I'd have to actually run through the numbers on that to see what that would look like. So I'm going to just go ahead and uh, pitch that one on the side. With, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll address that when we get to that episode, which we probably will do this summer. Uh, Matthew Campbell. Um, it's actually kind of amusing. One of our editors here is named Matthew Campbell, and that's also the name of my roommate from when I was working at the uh, Air Force Institute of Technology back in 2000. He just recently contacted me, like right before the show, to catch up on times. Um, two different people, by the way. Anyway, Matt asks, I heard an announcement from NASA that they are planning another trip to the moon in 2024-ish. Are you aware of this? Uh, and what are your thoughts on how plausible it is and the like? Um... Every time I hear plans to go to the moon, I'm happy to hear them. Some of them are more serious than others. And as soon as somebody actually puts together a, a, a you know a good solid plan that has funding, official funding, and actually has the schematics under production, then I'll begin to take it more seriously personally. Which is not to say it's not worthy of discussion, but um, yes, I would say that uh, I'm glad to hear they're doing one with NASA. I don't see 2024. We could do it if we really want to. I mean, this is 50-year technology, but I don't see that happening in 2024. It's just because it keeps getting put off. I'd be glad to be proven wrong. We're going to go ahead and go to a break, and we will be back in about three minutes. While we are taking a quick break, it's a good chance to get some questions in for our moderators to grab and forward to me. And if you want to increase the odds it will get answered, and be nice to our mods, Try to keep it clear and concise, and watch the typos. However, we won't get to every question, and normally I come back in a while after the live stream to watch the replay and to answer any questions left in the comments. After today's show though, we will also be having a Discord live chat on the SFIA Discord server, linked in the video description. Though we do ask everyone to enable the push to talk option and respect everyone else there. Which is to say, if you have already asked a question, try to let others get theirs in before asking another, and don't talk over top of other people, especially when they're asking a question or I'm trying to reply to it. You can also stick questions and replies in the text channel attached to the audio chat. Again though, please remember to go into your settings on Discord and change them to the push to talk before joining the conversation. Speaking of live talks, for those of you in the eastern Ohio and western Pennsylvania region, I've been invited by our friends at the Carnegie Science Center in Pittsburgh to give a talk next Monday, June 3rd, and we'll also be having a meet and greet for that event. Our topic will be on black holes and details and tickets are already available, I'll link to the event in the video description. That should be a fun evening, and I look forward to meeting some folks in person. If all that's still not enough SFIA, we have recently premiered a video on the Paperclip Maximizer on our new live streaming service, Nebula, and I'll link that in the video description too. You can watch that with the free trial, and we will also be looking into arranging it so our Patreon supporters can see those too, but it's a brand new and experimental service, so we'll be adding features and improvements as we go. Also, if you'd like to support us on Patreon, that's always appreciated and also linked below, as is our website, IsaacArthur.net, where you can find out other ways to donate to the channel or grab some awesome SFIA merchandise, as well as check out our forums and big catalog of recommended books. And now, back to our show. Okay, and we are back. Nasmuth asks, thank you Nasmuth, do you think a matter energy and vice versa converter is possible in our, in, in our Thorian universe? 
If so, could we direct it well enough for a replicator? Um, could we talk about something like that in a clock tech video, I suppose? We did kind of look at that in the Santa Claus machine, some of the problems we have with, uh, with things along those lines. And um, I would say that an actual matter-to-energy converter is potentially possible. I mean, again, we have some options on the table for doing things like that with a black hole, for instance. But uh, you're almost always going to get a spillover, and the amount of energy being released when you're converting stuff like that is probably going to be so huge, relatively speaking, that you're going to be vaporizing everything as fast as you're trying to make it. But there's nothing that specifically prevents you from turning a piece of matter into a piece of energy per se. So that might be on the table. Um, you know, advice for us to do energy in the matter, but I don't think that's ever really the approach you'd make. And I'm not, I'm thinking that would really let you do uh, fast replication, but maybe. Um, it's hard to say. Whenever you're speculating about things like clock tech, it's, there's so much guesswork to be done because there's no real physical uh, basis for that speculation. Isaac Smith, hmm, nice to be another Isaac. Isaac Smith asks, what technology that you think will show up in your lifetime are you looking forward to the most? Life extension. I'm looking forward to life extension showing up in my lifetime. That's the one. <laughs> uh, Vix86 asks, do you think we will reach a point in STEM where humans will need gene engineering or cyber implants to be able to advance these fields due to the increasing breadth of knowledge and complexity? You know, intelligence is kind of a tricky thing. Um, how fast you can do math is not indicative of the concepts you can learn about physics or science. Um, they are presumably all things too complicated for us to think about. We tend to just assume that's the case. I'm not sure if that's really true. Um, I think we tend to have a somewhat incorrect view of intelligence, though what the correct one is, I couldn't say. Um, it certainly would be very handy for advancing those fields if we could do things that would allow us to cybernetically in increase our intelligence or speed up our rate of thinking. Or, as said, Nick Bostrom, when he talks about superintelligence, breaks into three types um, speed intelligence, where you're same brain thinking structural, but you're just speeding things up. So, like, the rest of the universe seems to slow down for you. Uh, quality superintelligence was the hardest one to find. That's the one that would presumably let you actually do. Um, more complicated concepts. You know, the quality intelligence being what I have that 10 chimpanzees don't have, even though they're the same brain power that lets me outthink them as a group. And of course, the third one being uh, a group, a networked intelligence. Uh, Matthew Swangle, thank you, asks, on black holes, what's to say they aren't very large balls of super dense material? Nothing. Uh, well, the math kind of argues they might be point-like or that they would be one Planck length across. Um, the rest of his question says, I feel like they are always portrayed as these tiny objects, but I envision them as huge dense balls. Um, something that's Planck density would fit the entire universe, and this, this would be how dense something would be if we were to reduce the singularity to about the size of uh, one Planck length. You could fit the entire universe into something that would look like it fit on top of a pinhead. Um, don't quote me on that number, but it's very small. And... Um, you know, with a black hole, the idea is there's something just keeps crushing it. But uh, what keeps a star from collapsing normally? It's fusion, that, 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 uh, that um, you know, stasis that you get, that equilibrium that you get, uh, uh, hydrostatic equilibrium, that prevents the thing from falling apart because it's generating heat so fast and the more you press on it, the more it warms up. When that runs out, you get that white dwarf degenerate matter where it's the particles individually that just can't be pushed on anymore. But if they push on those hard enough, they collapse into uh, that next state of degenerate, degenerate matter, uh, which is what gets you those neutron stars. 
And then for the longest time, we thought after that, it would definitely collapse into a singularity. That there was just nothing left that could hoard it back and would just keep collapsing until it couldn't collapse anymore because there was no such thing to collapse into, a point-like dimension. But then we have the idea that we might have a quark star, uh, which would be something that's even denser than a neutron star, though not much. And we sometimes think a neutron star might be uh, having a quark star at its center as well, a layer that was quark material. And then we have Planck stars, which is the idea that they might just be compressed that extreme point, but they can't actually quite compress anymore. But it's hard to study what goes on with things like you know, gravity at the quantum scale because we don't really have a quantum gravity theory yet that's solid. Uh, so they are not necessarily point-like dimensions. The same for something like the Big Bang, for instance. We say the universe started off as a point. No, we don't say that at all. What we say is that it couldn't have been any smaller than the farthest back we can see, because we don't actually only see it about 300,000 years into the universe, so you get that big wall of plasma when the whole universe was basically as dense as a star, uh, as hot as a star. Um, and we might be able to see further back than that by looking at neutrinos, uh, background neutrino radiation. But uh, we don't know for sure that it started off as a point-like object, and even when we say that, we would only know about that our observable universe. The original universe might have been infinite in size and begun to expand. It could be infinite in size now, but we can only see a certain portion of it, and we have reason to believe that uh, it may have been that the, this observable universe was once point-like, or very close to it. Point-like doesn't necessarily mean literally no dimensionality to it at all. Um, we have reason to think it is, though not a lot, but we also have no reason to think that it's not. So there's one of those things where we just need more information. There might be a tiny, tiny little thing at the center of a black hole, but it'll be very tiny. Thank you, Cobra Viper. He asks, uh, he or she asks, when fusion becomes a viable power source, do you think that atmospheric carbon capture and utilization would provide the resources needed for a post-scarcity society? No. Um, we will be doing another episode on fusion recently, uh, soon too, because that won the poll over on Patreon. Uh, we'll still have that poll open, by the way, if you want to vote, and I'll leave it open for another day or so for topics that were selected on Patreon for upcoming episodes. Uh, why do I say no on that one? If you have good cheap fusion, and it's not enough to have fusion, you actually have to have fusion that's producing power cheaper than, uh, you know, significantly cheaper than other power sources, um, which is not necessarily a guarantee. Uh, if you have power that is just so cheap that you can, you know, get it for a hundredth what we get it for now, for instance, or maybe even a tenth. At that point in time, you can suck carbon right out of the air if you want to. You can turn it right back into gasoline, which is a handy way to make a, a type of battery if you want to. You suck out uh, air and water. You spend a lot of energy to do that, but uh, now you've got gasoline. It's a good battery um, for an engine. But would that actually be providing as much resources? No, not really. I mean, there was a lot of carbon in the atmosphere, but uh, not that much. There's a lot more carbon right underneath our feet, and we don't actually build that many things out of carbon. Um a civilization that only built stuff out of graphene might find the really pure carbon extracted from sucking out of the air might be a good source for that, but uh, that's a little hard to say, and that would just be that specific material. Um, data Analysis Toolkit asks, what megastructure are we closest to building? Who's building a highway system right now? Um, it's always hard to classify what a megastructure is. Of the things we talk about in the show, I usually consider the uh, the O'Neill Cylinder to be kind of the first megastructure we'd be building that was habitable. But then there's a question, would a solar collector that was, um, you know, like uh, one millimeter thick, but a million miles, uh, square miles, you know, in, in sail area, is that a megastructure? Even though it only weighs a few tons. 
And you got things like the Great Wall of China or the pyramids that might count or the various highway systems we use. But I usually put the O'Neill Sondo as, as the first real mega structure for our discussions. Um, and I think we would be in a position to build one of those potentially in this century. Um, again, they're not high tech. It's just you have to have a reason to build something like that. And they are very big. And you have to be able to source the matter for anything like that from off Earth or have a really cheap source of matter for that. Um, if we really invest into space, I would tend to say the orbital ring would be a megastructure that we'd force build because that's when it lets you start pulling matter up to build all this stuff in space. Um, but the orbital ring is a bit of a catch-22. You don't necessarily want to build something like that until you have a lot of stuff in space. And so you might already have a megastructure or two before you did that. But I would tend to say that the orbital ring or an O'Neill Sondor would probably be our first megastructures, and I could see either one of those being built in the 24th century. It just depends on how quickly we want to push forward. They're not super advanced, they're just very big investments. The author asks, what would retail look like on a space station? Like, would we find a 7-Eleven on a space station, or would retail work different in the future? Um, I think you might find a 7-Eleven on a, in a, um, a space station, because people still want to have something to drink, get a coffee, you might have a Starbucks there. Uh, as to whether or not retail will work different in the future. Oh yeah, when I was a kid um, in the 1980s, uh, don't date me, um, because I'm 26. Uh, When I was a kid in the 1980s, we didn't have Walmart really, at least not where I was living at. And then Walmart kind of came to dominate the retail market. And now Amazon is kind of displacing that too. You had a lot more individual department stores, a lot more mom and pop shops. Things change uh, with uh, things like retail all the time. Um, but little shops for conveniences for having lunch at, I could definitely see those on a space station. So, um, <clears throat> trying to pick more, and that's kind of hard though. Uh, the real Byleth asks, what could allow us to figure out what's inside a black hole? Could we ever actually see a singularity? Um, oh, going back to the last one real quick, we will talk about that a little bit in the space tourism episode in a, in a month or so. Um, what could allow us to figure out what's inside a black hole? We could jump down one. That's the only thing that would ever allow us to actually conform. You can work things out in theory, and theory can be pretty strong. Remember, we've never seen what's at the center of our own planet. We've never even dug down to the mantle. Uh, I don't remember how deep that borehole in Russia got, but it wasn't all the way down to the mantle. And you know, trying to drill deeper than that, that's not really on the table in the near future. There are ways you could conceivably do that, but they are pretty extreme for very little in the way of useful results. And uh, we don't really have a lot of debates about what the, uh, the center of the planet is made outside of academic circles. <coughs> well, I want to say it's semantic debates, but obviously they, they're pretty agreed on what the core is made out of. They're just arguing over proportionality. Um, so that would be an example of something that we can't really see, but are pretty confident about. If your models are good enough in that they're predicting other things that you can measure, um, that they are falsifiable and testable, then you could know what's going on inside a black hole potentially. But to actually get ex- experimental evidence of one, the only way I could conceivably think that you could ever look inside a black hole and report about it, well, I don't think you could ever report about it, but leave it would be if you waited for that black hole to evaporate in untold trillions of trillions of trillions of trillions of years. And you could only do that on the really long lived ones, like a galactic central one where they live even longer. But you would not be able to escape even then. You know, just because matter and energy are evaporating out of that black hole does not mean that information is, uh, let alone a person. So I think the only way to actually find out would be to go down one and you get to know. <laughs> so that would be about it. 
Uh, and I think that might be interesting for the future as we talk about using these things as a place to live at the end of the universe. Um, and that's quite probable in a lot of potential scenarios. Uh, I think you would start to have people as those things kind of chucked on, ran out of fuel, whatever, to decide to just go ahead and jump down one to test the theory, you know, personally. I mean, there's nothing else. You've got nothing to lose at a certain point. Uh, <clears throat> Shadow asks, most artists and media impressions of the future depict sleek skyscrapers and other like designs. How do you think this might affect conservation efforts and historic sites in decades or centuries? You, I, I, I would say... Historical buildings are only interesting once they've actually become historical, and until then, people knock them down because they are damaged, rotten um, money pits. Um, there are quite a few cities that have gone so overboard with their historical preservation that they uh, they've seriously damaged their budget and zoning capabilities. That, and saying that as a county official, um, it, it could be very hard for economic development if you got people declaring everything a historic site. So it is kind of weighing the difference. It's the same with the museum, though, asking how much money do we want to spend on preservation of this or that. Um, I don't see us knocking over um, something like uh, you know Abe Lincoln's uh, log cabin. You're not going to knock that over to build a skyscraper on top of it if you surround it with skyscrapers. You might dome that over to create a false effect of, of the original log cabin side of trees, though. So, and it's possible some folks might decide, well, we can't constantly repair this. And when you're repairing a painting or a house like that, uh, you start running into that um, Theseus ship issue or, or grandfather's axe issue of where it's not really the original object anymore because you're replacing it bit by bit. And some folks might say, why don't we just upload that into a digital construct people can explore and touch and feel um, and uh, not worry about damaging. Uh, so that might be one way historical preservation goes, especially for... Items that aren't likely to be able to cover themselves with tourism revenue. Um, try to speed up a bit here, though. Again, if we don't get to all your questions, I just take them as orders. The mods send them over from the chat window. Uh, feel free to leave them in the comments, and I'll get to them in a couple of hours when I come back to watch the replay or bring them over to the Discord chat and ask them there. Um, Brian Deal asks, what do you think about quark engineering, like making new atoms? I think that's an awesome idea, uh, just on general principle. We have six types of quarks. Um, and we also have three different types of electrons and neutrinos, say electrons, uh, leptons, the electron, the muon, and the tauon. Um, six different types of quarks, six different types of leptons, but all we really use for making matter is the electron, the proton, and the, uh, and the, uh, neutron, and the proton and the neutron are both made out of up and down quarks. Using ones that are strange, charm, or top or bottom quarks to make matter out of it would be awesome if we can find some way to do it. I'm sure there would be all sorts of new chemistry, new science to be had out of something like that. Uh, how we would go about doing that is another story because it doesn't really look like the universe provides those. And making them and keeping them stable because they have very short lives is another matter. Uh, <clears throat> Sierra asks, do you think space combat will ever occur outside of all KVs? <clears throat> relativistic kill vehicles uh, um when you throw something at somebody at near the speed of light uh that's a relativistic kill device uh kill missile call it what you would um beamed weapons potentially rkvs uh so there are slow ordinance circumstances where that would work just fine though i mean certain types of flak you we were talking about fighters earlier on in the uh in the uh live stream if somebody's attacking you from just a few thousand kilometers away, um, there might be occasions where you'd feel you, you'd be more reasonable to apply with something that was a little bit slower or speed. Speed's always handy for your ordinance, but there's a lot of things that you can just do better. You know, and, and one thing to keep in mind is that 
with these really fast reaction times, you got anything that's got material, like a mass drive, or you could just, you could have a slow response just from trying to rotate the can into place, no matter how fast you can aim, just because the gun has to actually move on its housing, or it's going to get shot. Right? I mean, it's going to, you know, not be able to shoot in the right direction. It might rip itself off just from trying to turn that fast. Uh, but I do think that there will be a preference towards um, things that move as fast as you can get them, which relativistically. <clears throat> Anti-Fusion asks, what would your counter-argument be to someone saying that lunar water ice is likely unusable due to contamination with harmful regolith? I, I'd be surprised if anyone made that argument. Um, you can pull the water out of any number of things or make it. Obviously, you want a minimum amount of uh, effort involved. You want something you can filter very easily um, without having to like boil it, for instance, um, to distill it. You want something that's not going to damage your filters or require constant replacement of your filters, too. Um but certainly it's a lot easier to get water ice from the moon if you're on the moon than to bring it in from Earth. So it's it's a relative amount of effort. There might be one of those things, though, where it's kind of power intensive. So you ran during the two-week phase that uh, you had a lot of light on the moon, and then you shut those operations down during the cord phase because you're just trying to collect water. <clears throat> Christopher Driver asks, do you think advances in material science will be the last invention possible or a manipulation of energy like it? I can't help but feel DNA is underutilized in new tech. Um, hmm. Metamaterials offers a lot of really advanced new technologies that we could potentially use um, that do things we don't expect. And the one that I would think most valuable um, off the top of my head, I should say, for metamaterials would be something that was actually very good as a magnetic shield. Because that's the one that really lets us use superconductors. Um, a big problem we have with superconductors when we talk about active support. First, we're asking a warm temperature one, one that we didn't have to cool down. Um, though keeping stuff cool isn't so hard in space, so you can just shield it from light. But the other problem is that those magnetic fields that those are generating are very subject to interference by other magnetic fields, and you really can't shield against magnetic materials. The best we've got right now is something called mu metal. Um, the, the M and the mu in there is... Uh, the symbol we use for magnetic, so magnetic material basically. And that's not ideal, not anywhere near good enough. But metamaterials do offer some options for magnetic shielding that might be really valuable. Um, and uh, yeah, I would say DNA is underutilized in new tech as well. We do have an episode, two episodes coming up on that. Uh, we have space whales coming up at, what is that, the beginning of August or the end of July, somewhere around, sometime in July. And we also have a bonus episode because the episode went too long called Void Ecology that uh, Jerry Gorn helped me write up. He actually wrote some short stories for it too. Uh, one of the uh, editors here was also an author. Um, I say normally on our breaks of late, we've been highlighting one of the folks who helps out on the team, but a little bit rushed this week. Uh, so um, we just had that one little break in there. But uh, there's a guy worth mentioning, Jerry Gorn, one of our editors here who uh, also helps write episodes sometimes. Um, does uh, does some books as well, which we'll mention on that episode. But we have two episodes coming up, basically one on Sunday and then one on Thursday, Void Ecology and Space Whales. We're going to try to look a little bit more at biotechnology in the, in the future in terms of space. Um, Gene Sebastian asks, are we already capable of starting a Dyson Swarm? Starting one, yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's nothing advanced to a Dyson Swarm, technologically speaking. We already have the technology to uh, mine things like that in space. It's just getting the stuff up there, um, getting that that first step up there that lets you kind of bootstrap what you're doing. And um, I think uh, just noticing how head, my low my head is on the video. Uh, anyway, we do have the technology to manufacture stuff in space just fine to tear apart asteroids and things like that. That we'd have to refine those processes a bit. 
and um, we just have to get that infrastructure in place first. Anything that makes that cheaper would make it easier, but there's nothing really advanced about building a Dyson Swarm. It's just getting your infrastructure started and rolling, you know, that first colonial step of uh, setting up an industrial moon base that's self-sustaining. At that point, once you're outside the Earth's gravity, well, it gets so easy to keep replicating new things up there. You know, once you can build stuff in space, as opposed to having to haul it up there, it changes the dynamics. White Weasel Gaming asks, if we ever received first contact with another sapien species, how do you think that would impact our society and culture? It would depend on the species. I mean, if it's a very hostile one, it might impact us, literally. Um, if they're very friendly, we, you know, we might uh, still suffer some negative effects uh, and some very positive effects, but cultures change a lot when they interact with other cultures, as we know, and I don't think an alien species would be less than, than normal. Yeah, but I don't think it's going to cause us to go nuts or insane or get wiped out. In all likelihood, they'll have thought about the kind of impact it'll have on us. And, you know, humans are built for adaptability. It's our biggest strength uh, from from a plant that's been breeding things for adaptability for uh, 4 billion years. We are the most adaptable in our thinking. And um, what's scary or new today is old news a week later. So... There would certainly be an impact, and a permanent impact too, that's going to rearrange how you look at the universe to some degree, but I don't think it would be all that shocking or traumatic. Go for about f- three or four more questions, or a couple more questions. Chance Claiborne asks, what happens when a black hole radiates so much that it loses its mass to sustain its singularity? Well, it ceases to exist. Um, it's never going to um, decompress like that, though. It will kind of seem like it when it flares out. Uh, we will talk about that more in a couple weeks, though, for weaponizing black holes. Um, Tardigrade asked, do you think a network of rail guns all over the solar system would be a practical method of transporting goods? Sure. Um, so would light sails. Anything that lets you not only speed the stuff up, but slow it down would be a good approach for that. Um, and, um, just in general, things like that, it's the ability to add that energy without having to use thrust or momentum or to subtract it so that you can get that energy back, you know, by catching it basically. That would make it a lot better for being able to do fast transport around, um, and which is what we kind of ideally want. Otherwise, these things take years. Uh, last question we do, Gene Sebastian asks, can insects like flies or ants get on board a ship and become space pests? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't think we've had that problem with the space station, that I recall, that we do get biological contamination up there. But um, actually, that's one of the things we're talking about in space whales and bio ships, so I'll mostly uh, bypass that one, but you would tend to expect almost any ship that had been in service for a long time, which means any interstellar colony ship or any space freighter in general, to start developing its own little ecology on board just off the detritus, unless you're doing something active to prevent that, which you could probably do. All right, let's go over the quick schedule real quick uh, before we take off for the day. Uh, As a reminder, we do have that Discord session that will start up about 10 minutes after we finish up here. They'll go ahead and join in there. as soon as you want. There's a link for that in the video description below, and please do remember to turn on Push Talk. Uh, episodes we got coming up next week is going to be Space Planes, which will be kind of fun. Uh, colonizing Pluto after that, uh, first one for June, then Weaponizing Black Holes, then Clock Tech Superpowers, and then kind of a follow-up to Space Planes with Upward Bound Beaming Technology, and that is not, uh, not interstellar spaceships or interplanetary spaceships. We'll be talking about how to use beamed power sources to uh, to move things out of our own atmosphere. So it's kind of an extension on space planes. 
And then we've got an episode for July 4th on synthetic meat, and then space tourism, then void ecology, space whales and bioships, and then we'll close July out with invasive aliens. And we will go ahead and close out here for the day. If you haven't already checked out the Paperclip Maximizer on Nebula, give that one a try. That's linked below too. Um, and uh, if you're in the Pittsburgh area for uh, the first week of June, uh, feel free to swing by the Carnegie Science Center. I haven't been there in years, but it's a great place. I'm looking forward to talking there. And we will see you on Thursday, or you can come join us on Discord, in which case we'll see you in about 10 minutes.